Hello, and welcome to the Particular Baptist Podcast. My name is Daniel Vincent, uh, flying solo today without my co-host. Um, Sean is uh, still on break and hope to join us next month or so. Um, you can find us and other podcasts at reformpodcast.com. Also check out our blog at theparticularbaptist.net. And today we have a guest with us. Um, Dr. Michael Hyken um, is Chair and Professor of Church History and Director of the Andrew Fuller Center for Baptist Studies at uh, Southern Seminary in Louisville, Kentucky, and is Professor of Church History at Heritage Theological Seminary in Cambridge, Ontario. Thank you, Dr. Hyken, for joining me today. Yeah, it's a privilege. Yeah, it's a delight to be with you. So can you tell us, before we dive into our topic, can you tell us a little bit about yourself and, and what got you studying Baptist history? Yeah, so I'm uh, English by birth. Uh, I was born in England. Uh, parentage would be Irish mother and a Kurdish father. Um, the Kurdish side of my uh, kind of background, I always used to have to explain uh, prior to the uh, Gulf Wars and the involvement of Western powers in the Middle East in terms of uh, military conflict and where the Kurds have played such an important role. Um, so my father came to study in Britain in the probably around 1950 and met my mom there. And that's where I was born. I was raised there. We emigrated to Canada uh, in the uh, mid-60s uh, when my father got a position at a university. He's, he was a, he is a, was an electrical engineer. And um, I was converted there uh, at the University of Toronto in uh, 1974 and um, was converted in a Baptist church, um, but um, had a real problem with being a Baptist initially. And partly because, well, actually mainly because um, I'd been raised Roman Catholic, so there was a real mm. very, very strong difference between the liturgy, the worship and the, uh, of Catholics and the Baptists. But um, the uh, big thing I think that was a stumbling block for me for being a Baptist in the early years of my Christian walk was the fact that Baptists were largely ignorant of their roots and really didn't give a hoot. Uh, they were... You know, I remember asking a deacon, so who are who are we? I've always loved history. And um, um, I was studying the history of philosophy. And um, um, remember asking a deacon, so who are we? Um, and where did we come from as Baptists? And he, he didn't know. And it was quite evident he really didn't. He really didn't care. I mean, we're people of the book, which is obviously fundamental. But it was deeply frustrating. And my pastor at the time was a good man, but had been trained at Dallas Theological Seminary, which has never been known for church history. Uh, they do have John Hanna there, who's absolutely brilliant. But normally, I mean, this is back in the 50s when he was trained, and they were not a, a center for church history. And um, he, he recommended I study at a place called Wycliffe College, which is part of the University of Toronto, and an Evangelical Anglican School. It was a fabulous experience. Um, I was there for eight years. It gave me a rich grounding in the classical orthodoxy of the faith, uh, Nicene Trinitarianism, Chalcedonian Christology, um, the Reformers. Um, we used uh, Cramner's Book of Common Prayer for worship. Uh, it was it was just tremendous in so many ways. Um, and it stabilized me. It gave me a, it was there that I made the decision to uh, go into church history. Um, by my second year of my Master of Divinity, and uh, did a PhD in church history there. And um, 
by the end of that time, I was I was a Baptist, but it wasn't because of Baptists um, uh, helping me understand their history. Um, I think now this is the '80s. I think there was a real lacuna, at least in, in my context of <clears throat> interest in Baptist history, and uh, my initial studies, PhD studies, were in the Church Fathers. But by the mid-80s, when I began to read Baptist literature um, to teach it, I began to realize that if nobody, if we, we as Baptists don't uh, teach our history, nobody will. Um, the Anglicans, um, Roman Catholics, Orthodox, Presbyterians, Evangelicals of every stripe are interested in the Church Fathers, etc. But only Baptists seem to be really interested in Baptists. And I, I can understand that. And uh, it was in the 80s then I began to shift my focus uh, from the patristic world uh, to the Baptist world. And the, the world that really kind of caught my interest was the particular Baptists of the, uh, in Britain uh, in the 17th and 18th centuries. You know, that's interesting that uh, you say that the ignorance or the apathy towards Baptist history kind of turned you off, so to speak, to um, the Baptist faith. Um, I guess I can see how that would be because if if there is apathy and and there is this ignorance, it almost seems like that the people involved really don't take their own beliefs seriously. Um, so yeah, I, I can see how that could be. That's interesting. Um, so why would you see it as important uh, for Baptists, especially Reformed or particular Baptists, to study their history? And I think you touched on that a little bit. Um, but if you could expound upon that, yeah. Well, it, it's it's like it's it's like knowing you know your own family history, and uh, you know the the question of who am I, um, which uh, you know everybody has to grapple with, you know, um, and your defining of yourself in terms of your roots, your your background, your origin. I mean, we we live in a conflicting day. Obviously, there are some for whom that question is um, anathema because they want to recreate, reinvent themselves all the time. But for most people, there is this desire to have some idea about the past of my parents, my family ancestry, my family heritage, uh, because that helps me understand something of the roots that, uh, that have shaped me. Um, we don't arrive in this world <clears throat> a blank slate with um, the ability simply to re recreate uh, or invent whatever sort of persona we want. Uh, we are shaped by, from a physical standpoint, by our genetic heritage. And we're shaped by our circumstances and the environment. And um, uh, that's not the only thing about, that's important about who we are, for instance, as Baptists, is our past. But it's a, it's a vital component. And um, <clears throat> I do think that if we're theologically committed to reform theology, um, that we, we need to understand uh, where that theological passion, uh, the sort of currents and um, emphases it's had in the past um, have, have come from and how they've shaped us and how they've shaped our churches. Uh, again, you know, we're, we're converted in, in local churches. Um, these churches have histories. And we've entered into the, the fruit of those who've gone before, as Jesus said in John 4, 
others have labored and you have entered into the, the their labors and we need to know you know um what what the 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 people who founded our churches believed um uh etc <clears throat> and you can obviously trace that back organically to the earliest baptists who are, I, I would argue come out of the puritan movement in the 17th century yeah that's yeah that's very important because we can learn from the past in terms of what to do and and what not to do i mean you you see for instance like the hymn singing controversy of the particular baptists um you can see the uh the the i guess you could say that the hatred that some of those brothers exhibited towards each other um vehemently like with benjamin keach and some others in that process and we can learn what not to do and how to exactly. avoid some of those situations yeah exactly yeah so the past yeah you the, the what you're using there is the illustration of the past as a as a vehicle for teaching us wisdom and that's another reason why we need to know our past as baptists um but also as i was you know emphasizing it it's like a person who um has dementia and if the dementia is serious enough they forget who who they are they forget their their family and at that point mm. they're incapable they're incapable of doing anything you, you you can't you can't let them out the house because they won't come back they 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 don't remember how to get back to the house they don't remember who the where the house is and that it's their house etc 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 um and that when the church forgets her past she's like a she's like a a very sad state of a person with dementia and yeah, and and you start to maybe introduce new teachings or new things into the life of your tradition that aren't biblical and don't comport with your yeah. tradition the way they shouldn't. So yeah. It, yeah, it can create all kinds of problems. All right, so our our topic is Baptist history, but more specifically, we're looking at uh, William Kiffin, um, and and he's kind of, I guess he has a a rich history in that he was one of the signers of our confession and had a big influence upon that particular Baptist. Um, but when was he born and when did he become a Christian? When did he really start to formulate um, his Baptist convictions? Yeah, William Kiffin. Um, so his, his, his name indicates Welsh roots. <clears throat> um, he's born in 1616, which is the year that um, William Shakespeare uh, dies. So that kind of orients him. Um, he's born into that uh, early Stuart world. Uh, James I is the King of England at the time, the, um, the Scottish monarch who was James VI, who has inherited the throne of England uh, after the death of Elizabeth. And um, uh, he, would, he would live the entirety of the 17th century. Uh, he dies in 1701. Um, it's probably, Part of the 20th century is probably the most tumultuous century in British history, in modern British history, if you date modern British history from the 1500s, um, because it sees um, the clash between the Puritan party in Parliament and the King, uh, which leads to civil war, um, which was absolutely brutal uh, from 1642 to 1651, in the middle of which the King is executed uh, a Republican government formed, uh, in which Oliver Cromwell becomes the dominant figure, who is a friend of Kiffin's. And then uh, the collapse of that government in 1660 and the reintroduction or the, what's called the restoration of the monarchy, uh, which leads to a period of brutal repression 
of the Puritan movement and any of its manifestations, which includes the particular Baptists, who I'll talk about in a sec. And that lasts till 1688, the so-called Glorious Revolution, which really is a very, very important event for uh, Anglo-American um, political history because it lays down some foundational freedoms, um, things like the right of assembly and so on, and uh, religious freedom um, that are central to both the British and the American experience. Um, <clears throat> and Kiffin lives through all of that. And it has to, becomes a major leader among the people we call particular Baptists and has to give guidance in the middle of uh, war, uh, civil war, riot, um, vicious governmental repression, and so on. Um, born in 1616, um, we, uh, up until recently, very recently, we, we really didn't know much about his parentage, but there is a scholar named Larry Kreitzer who is in, England, in Oxford, and he has done remarkable research on, um, on Kiffin. Uh, to the tune of actually eight, seven volumes. The the volumes down here, if I might. Um, oh, yeah. And sorry, there we go. And uh, he has seven of these volumes. Uh, that's actually the only known portrait of Kiffin from which all other portraits are based. It's an oil-based painting that was done in his lifetime. And um, uh, just a remarkable... Uh, researcher and he's uncovered all kinds of stuff it's not a biography per se these are small essays on various aspects of kiffin's life so we know something then about uh, kiffin's roots born in 1616 um lower middle class um he was apprenticed uh, at the age of 12 uh to um a leather worker and um was involved in that whole area really for much of his life um, he's bivocational as a pastor, um, will become a multimillionaire because of trade deals he makes in the 1640s, in the middle of the Civil War, really. Um, <clears throat> conversion comes in um, the 1630s. He had decided he was fed up with um, his master and decided to run away, but he did so on a Sunday and is wandering the streets of London and sees a large crowd of people going into a church. And um, it appears that he is unchurched and he goes in with them. And um, he is um, uh, listening to a sermon on uh, Ephesians, uh, I think it's Ephesians 5 or 6, where the duties of servants to masters and masters to servants. And he was positive that the man knew his condition. And it uh, framed this sermon on, uh, especially for him. And uh, he determines to go back uh, to uh, his master and come back and hear such preaching again. And these, the, the, the preacher he heard was a Puritan. And uh, he, that's his context of his conversion. He is brought to faith in Christ um, and begins meeting with a number of other apprentices, usually on a Sunday morning before uh, worship, where they would pray together. Uh, share each other's burdens, and also begin to to um, recite sermons that they've heard. Um, and this is this is this 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 really is his formal training uh, during the 1630s. He joins a um, 
a nonconformist church, that is a church outside the Church of England, um, in which um, it's known as the Jacob Lath Jesse Church because of its first, the names of its first three pastors. And um, it's there that he comes to Baptist convictions by 1642. Um, and within two years, he is a leader of a church, which eventually will be known as Devonshire Square Baptist Church, uh, the locale in London where it will meet. Uh, it's not initially that name because they, they move around a variety of places. And he'll be the pastor of the church from 1642 till his death in 1701. Never takes a penny in salary because during the 1640s, because of a number of <clears throat> very astute business deals that he makes, um, he becomes the equivalent of probably a multi-billionaire. I mean, enormously wealthy and uh, very, <laughs> very unusual to have your pastor, a multi-billionaire, uh, you know, on the tune of a... Uh, uh, Bill Gates or whatever. <laughs> wow. Yeah, that is kind of interesting when I've I've been reading on Kiffin that he was kind of unusual in that respect, that he had great wealth. Um, yeah. But he seems to have used it well. Um, I know in, in your book, um, Kiffin, Always, and Keach, you do talk about this, that he did seem to use his, or he used his wealth to help those who were less fortunate than him. He wasn't a hoarder. He wasn't. Uh, he wasn't greedy. He no, was. And he tried to use his wealth well. Very good. Yeah, and there's no evidence that he lived an extravagant lifestyle. Um, we have n a number of uh, very clear instances that have come down to us of of a judicious and godly use of wealth. Hmm. Now, what was his role in the in the first uh, London Baptist Confession, the 1644? Yeah. So, <clears throat> within two years of the Baptists. Uh, well, the first earliest Baptist church that I would argue, particular Baptist church, is 1638 um, with a pastor named John Spilsbury, uh, south of the River Thames um, in the area of London that we know as Southwark, where the Metropolitan Tabernacle is situated today. Um, and uh, within, within uh, six years of 1638, there are seven particular Baptist churches in London. Um, the baptizing of believers all of it done in the open air in either the thames river or lakes or ponds um they'd have to have been in and around london so probably most of the baptizing is in the thames river um brought to mind the anabaptists of the previous century who by this point in time have a pretty negative uh, image uh partly because actually mainly because of an, an, of an incident that takes place at a place called Munster <clears throat> on the German-Dutch border, where a group of Anabaptists, violent Anabaptists, uh, seized control of the town, uh, forcibly uh, baptized adults or gave them a choice of baptism or death and tried to reinstitute polygamy. And it was just a, it was a horrible mess and was eventually put down by Roman Catholic troops. And that becomes an image of Anabaptist the, what it means to be an Anabaptist. And the word Anabaptist has the same sort of connotations. It, you know, the word pink, you know, pinko or a, a red or a commie uh, would have in the American psyche. Um, wow. It's just a very negative image. And so when Baptists begin to baptize believers, people in England think, oh, the Anabaptists have reemerged. Their emphasis on our, they're, they're basically Arminian in theology, the emphasis on the freedom of the will. A rejection of total depravity, um, revolutionary, undermining the government, 
and so on. And this is the middle of civil war. By 1644, the nation is racked by this, this, this political conflict between the king and the Puritans who had control of parliament and that it had actually broken out into open conflict. The king had, uh, Charles the First, had precipitated this by attempting to arrest a number of um, key Puritan leaders in the House of Parliament. It failed. He then withdrew from the city of London to Oxford, about what is today, about an hour north of, of the city, but in those days would have been a day's ride, and declares war in his own parliament. And um, so in the middle of all that, you have these these Baptists baptizing believers, and people are accusing them of being Anabaptists, of being um, unseemly in the act of baptism, namely baptizing men and women in the nude, uh, which wasn't being done, obviously, at all, and uh, holding to free will, undermining the government, etc. And so um, William Kiffin, um, John Spilsbury, who was the first particularly Baptist pastor, as I mentioned, south of London, and a man named Samuel Richardson are probably the authors of the First London Confession. And uh, they, drew from, they drew from other confessional documents, particularly a document called the True Confession, which was a document that had been drawn up by Congregationalist separatists in the 1590s in England uh, during the reign of Elizabeth. But essentially what they're trying to do in this document the First London Confession of Faith is set forth their convictions as, uh, first of all, Catholic in terms of their commitment to the Trinity, their commitment to Chalcedonian Christology. They particularly um, uh, emphasize that Christ is uh, the his threefold office of priest, uh, prophet, and king. They spend a lot of time focusing on that. And then uh, setting forth their th uh, their reformed convictions, they see themselves, because they've come out of Puritanism, they see themselves very much as part of this reformed international world spread throughout Europe from Scotland to Hungary. And, um, uh, and the emphasis on their obedience to the government. And so they, 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 they deal with a number of those the very clear charges against them. And then in the middle of the document, there are three articles, four articles on believers' baptism, that they are convinced on the basis of Holy Scripture that uh, only believers are to be baptized. And in the first confession, the first edition of the confession of 1644, um, there's no mention of the relationship of baptism to the Lord's table. But in the second edition, 1646, uh, there is a clear indication that they have become closed communion. That is, you must be baptized as a believer to be a regular communicant at the table in these Baptist churches. And uh, Kiffin then is at the heart of the, the crafting of this confession of faith, which serves as a, a boundary. It serves as a, uh, a marker for Baptist mission. Uh, between 1644 and 1660, those seven churches in London swell to 130 130 in England, Wales, uh, there's a couple in Scotland, they, they will disappear fairly quickly. And then in Ireland, uh, Ireland, England, and Wales. And uh, somebody really, I, I'm waiting for somebody to do a study on the the reasons for that remarkable growth. There's been a lot of work done on, you know, origins of Baptists. I mean, where do we come from? Who are we? What is our identity? As, you know, I was talking about earlier. 
Um, but somebody needs to do a study. Of why did Baptists grow from seven churches in 1644 to, to 130 in 1660? 16 years. A remarkable growth. Some of these churches in London, for instance, one of Kiffin's friends, uh, Hansard Knowles, he's regularly preaching to about 1,000 people. Um, just remarkable growth against the background of civil war and then the setting up of Republican government in the 1650s. So uh, Kiffin, Kiffin is a key, key figure. Um, crafting a foundational document, First Line of Confession, and then directing that mission on the basis of that text. It seems the Baptists had their work cut out for them, and and it is really neat to see how they, you know, you talk about the growth that they had in the backdrop of persecution. You know, they were persecuted, and I'm sure you know, they were persecuted so heavily, um, yet they continued to persevere, and it seems God blessed them in that. Um, as it, it, it yeah, so no in, these, well, in these early years, the, uh, the persecution is not as brutal as it would be from 1660 to 1688. Mm. Um, Got it. The leadership of Parliament will eventually come around to recognizing, yeah, these these men, if they um, they they need to register their churches and so on. Uh, but um, mm. the although the in uh, 1645, uh, 1644 actually, um, no, 1646. Sorry, yeah, the um, when the Westminster Assembly's meeting. Kiffin and Samuel Richardson stand at the doorway of the Jerusalem chamber, handing out copies of <laughs> First London Confession. It's a great scene uh, to the participants, and they get themselves arrested uh, for causing trouble. Because they're basically <laughs> trying to give the Westminster divines, you know, we've already solved a lot of these problems. <laughs> Here you go. And they get themselves arrested. They're in prison for about a day. But... Um, Kiffin builds close relationships with Cromwell. Uh, he had he had an amazing ability to be able to to win the friendship of political powers without compromising his own convictions. Hmm. And uh, there there must have been a winsomeness about him. And um, I, I think I. Yeah, Kiffin is is just a remarkable figure, and it really is a shame. I mean, this work that Kreitzer has done is tremendous work. But again, somebody needs to write a biography of William Kiffin. Now that we, what Kreitzer has done is lay, you know, here's all the primary sources, but somebody needs to come along and write a, and it will be, a, it's a tremendous story. Um, you know, his involvement with uh, business, and then Cromwell, the uh, Cromwellian era. And then the leadership during the period after the restoration of the monarchy. Um, yeah. I mean, when, when, sorry, when Baptists look yeah. back to the 17th century, and, you know, if you ask any typical Baptist, so name a Baptist in the 17th century. Well, John Bunyan. Right. <laughs> right. And yeah. the, Mr. Baptist, if you could use that phrase, of the 17th century is William Kiffin. It is not John Bunyan. John Bunyan mm -hmm. is open membership, open communion. Uh, he's Baptistic. But he's not in the mainstream of Baptist life in that period. And Kiffin, Kiffin is the man who really shapes uh, what particular Baptist will be in the late 17th, all through the 18th, into the early 19th century. So you talk about his uh, his relationship with the state. He seemed to handle himself well with, 
with leadership. So you mentioned his his relationship with Cromwell, um, and he seems to have had a very good relationship with Cromwell. So how did that kind of uh, shape the Baptist view of religious liberty? Because Cromwell obviously was coming at this from uh, a church-state mixture, to some extent at least, and the Baptists would have been more for religious freedom. Yeah, well, actually, Cromwell, Cromwell is a remarkable figure regarding religious liberty. Um, Cromwell is probably a Congregationalist. Uh, we, I say probably mm. because there is no indication that Cromwell was ever a member of a local church. Uh, he would have grown up Anglican, uh, mm. parish church in Huntingdon, in um, Huntingdonshire, in uh, the East Anglia, the eastern part, southeastern part of England. Um, once the Civil War breaks out, he's involved um, as a cavalry, cavalry leader and then rises through the ranks to become the leading general by the late 1640s. And then when uh, the king is executed, the Civil War completed in 1651, he basically becomes the dominant political figure. Um, he's a congregationalist, and, uh, but deeply committed to religious liberty. So, you know, you, in the, in the um, American Declaration of Independence and the discussions regarding the Amer founding of the American Republic, you find this talk about natural rights, that men and women have natural rights, and one of them being the freedom of religion. Well, Cromwell's talking about that in the 1640s. Hmm. If you read Cromwell, there's a thing called the Putney Debates, where a number of army generals are discussing why they are involved in prosecuting a war against their monarch and what the civil war is about. And Cromwell is insistent that this war is about religious liberty. It is about freedom of a man to worship according to his conscience. And so Cromwell then is very like-minded with uh, William Kiffin uh, in this regard. And uh, uh, the uh, Puritan government was not without its problems. For instance, uh, you know, they banned Christmas, uh, mm, yeah. any Christmas festivities. and uh, But there is remarkable religious liberty in, in England. Um, and um, so Kiffin then uh, is, is certainly, as a, as a Baptist, committed to separation of church and state, uh, that the state has no right to dictate into the internal life of a local church. Um, Kiffin then finds a fellow traveler with Cromwell. And um, Cromwell dies in 1658. He's in his late 50s. Uh, if he had lived another 20 years, it would be, you know, one, the sort of history of of, uh, of England would have been quite different. And which, who knows what that would have meant for America, you know, the whole development of, um, of uh, constitutional democracy in the British Isles would have taken a much more radical development much earlier. And, uh, but all that aside, uh, Kiffin, Kiffin is able to work with Cromwell uh, because of their like-minded convictions. It almost seems like these seeds of religious liberty were being formulated by England, which then, ironically, later on down the road, when the Americans' colonies rise up, um, are, are, are seeming to be lost. But, um, but it's, it's interesting. Maybe that's one of the reasons that Kiffin was able to have such a good relationship with leadership was the commonality that he saw with those he was working with. I don't know. 
Yeah, that, yeah, that's certainly part of it. But also, I think undergirding Kiffin, as mine said, is very much a, you know, a conviction that passages like Romans 13 and Second mm. uh, Timothy 1, pray for those in authority, that we might lead a, a quiet and peaceful life. Um, Second Thessalonians about working, you know, we are to lead quiet lives as as godly citizens. I mean, this this really shapes uh, Kiffin's political theology. On the one hand, very strong commitment to religious liberty. The, the 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 state has no right to dictate to its citizens what they can or cannot believe and how they should worship, as long as they are not undermining <clears throat> the the peace of the state. At the same time. This emphasis on obedience to authorities. Um, there were those in the Baptist movement who were known as Fifth Monarchists. And the Fifth Monarchy movement uh, was drawn out of Daniel's prophecies about there being four monarchies. And then the Fifth Monarchy being the Lord Jesus Christ monarchy. Um, and uh, these some of these Fifth Monarchists were, as one uh, Baptist historian, B.R. White, has put it, they were simply harmless Bible students. But others of them believed that the, the kingdom of our Lord Jesus Christ needed political force to establish it. And they were quite prepared to use violence to establish the what they saw as the, the, the reign of our Lord Jesus. And, um, you know, when the January 6th um, riot in or insurrection, depending on how you describe it, yeah. place in the Capitol last year, the first thing I thought of was a man named Venner who in 1661, he had links to Baptists. He wasn't himself a Baptist, but there were Baptists involved in him. In 1661, after the restoration of the monarchy, he stormed He stormed uh, a number of uh, key governmental buildings in London, and there was street fighting for three days. About 30 wow. people were killed. Then it was eventually captured, hanged, drawn, and quartered. And um, he... he gave again Baptists a bad name because he had links to the Baptists and a number of Baptists were involved in him who thought they were fifth monarchy men who thought that they could use violence to reestablish uh, or establish the kingdom of Christ. And um, Kiffin distances himself radically from these people. These people are not uh, uh, in obedience to the scriptures as we have laid down in the New Testament on how we should what are our duties as citizens regarding to the state? Of course, as I said, the religious liberty, the state, it is the state's responsibility to guarantee religious liberty. But it is our duty to be obedient to ruling authorities. And um, it's a very, it's a very, it's a very fine path to tread. Um, to maintain in his day uh, what we call nonconformity. We are not going to join the state, state church, the Anglican church. But at the same time, we will, in everything we can, be obedient to government authorities uh, without compromising or violating our consciences. And uh, Kiffin is, he is the man that Baptists needed in this period because there were those of a much more violent streak who saw the government as their leading enemy, who they were determined to overthrow. And Kiffin, Kiffin was able to, and there's a number of instances that take place between 1660 and the, the, the end of repression in 1688, where Kiffin is able to guide the Baptists along this pathway of commitment to religious liberty, 
no compromise on their convictions, and yet at the same time, seeking to be good citizens. And um, Kiffin is, is so important in that whole period. Hmm. Yeah, what, what's interesting is it, it seems in terms of um, those wanting to utilize political power to establish kingdom of Christ, there hasn't much that has changed over the years. We still see this coming up today in different forms. But I think it, you know, going back to why Baptist history is important to study, this is a perfect example. Look, it, exactly. it doesn't end well, and we can see what happens when godly men who stay to the scriptures, um, what their results are in terms of their work. And for Kiffin, it was to remain um, con committed to the scriptures and not following into these foolish things. Yeah, no, that, that, that's an excellent point. Um, uh, history never repeats itself exactly, but there are patterns and there are rhythms and rhymes. And this is a clear example that there are some in our day who are close to advocating violence against the state. Mm. Um, and um, uh, Kiffin is a, just a very helpful model of trying to, to remain true to one's convictions, um, yet at the same time uh, being obedient to the government insofar as we can without compromising our convictions and violating our consciences. Amen. Now, turning the discussion a little bit more towards church life, um, Kiffin was involved in some of these controversies um, that were among the particular Baptists. Um, you had mentioned open and closed communion. Uh, what was, it kind of maybe give an overview of that controversy, and then what was Kiffin's involvement in his stance yeah. in that? Yeah, so as I said, um, the 1644 Confession in its first edition uh, did not specify the relationship between the two ordinances of baptism and the Lord's Supper. In the 1646 edition, which is the second edition, which is the final, really, the final major edition, there are subsequent printings, but there's no substantial change to the text in this regard. It, it creates, uh, it argues for that after baptism, then that person is, is, uh, is uh, can be a communicant at the table, the Lord's Supper. And so really what you have there is the genesis of closed communion. Uh, obviously, these churches are all closed membership. By that, we mean that they only, the only those who are baptized as believers can be members of these Baptist churches. Um, again, Bunyan would, you know, I mentioned earlier John Bunyan, he would differ on that. He would accept his members into the Bedford Church where he was the pastor. Um, anybody who was a believer. Anybody who, who could give a credible confession of faith was walking according to the gospel. Uh, they could be, uh, uh, they, they would be allowed as members. But the Baptists uh, that are associated with Kiffin uh, would argue, no, you must be baptized as a believer to be a member. And then they become closed communion. That is, uh, baptism precedes the Lord's Supper. Um uh, in the 1670s, this becomes an issue of controversy. Bunyan, who's been imprisoned for 12 years, from 1660 uh, to 1672, upon his release um, and his assumption of the pastorate of Bedford, the Bedford uh, Baptist slash Congregationalist Church, it's not always easy to know exactly how to place this church because they're open membership. Um, he issues a statement of his faith in which he argues for not only open membership, but open communion. And uh, obviously the, the more problematic issue is open membership. He's willing to accept as members, full, full-blown members, men and women who aren't baptized as believers. Well, that raises all kinds of questions 
for the Baptists in London with Kiffin. If number one, with the scriptures aside, why are we? Why have we gone through all this trouble in emphasizing believers' baptism if it really doesn't matter in terms of your membership in a local church? Um, uh, were the early, earliest churches in the New Testament Baptist Baptistic churches? Uh, that is churches that accepted only as members believers who are being baptized. Um, could you be a believer in the early church without being baptized? And um, so Kiffin uh, finds himself launched into a controversy with Bunyan. Um, generally speaking, it's very civil. Uh, you mentioned earlier, you know, a controversy um, about uh, the way that sometimes enmity can be stirred up. And there was such in the hymn singing controversy in the late 16, in the 1690s. But in the, in the communion controversy, it tends to be fairly civil, um, except Bunyan does complain that uh, he, Kiffin said remarks about his, his, his financial background, his economic background. Uh, Bunyan and Kiffin came from the same social class lower middle class, upper lower class. They were artisans. They weren't the poorest of the poor, but they certainly weren't middle class in terms of um, wealth. Uh, Bunyan's social status hadn't changed. Kiffin, as I said, had become enormously wealthy. Um, we don't have any text where Kiffin actually says things about Bunyan, uh, but Bunyan complains about him being attacked in person. But by and large, the debate is civil. and. Um, uh, Kiffin will write his really his major written work, a sober discourse of right to church communion, in which he defends both uh, closed membership and closed communion, and um, he wins the argument. Ninety percent of particularly Baptist churches through the 18th century would be closed communion, closed membership on both sides of the Atlantic. Uh, this would be true for for American as well as British churches. Baptist churches, and in fact, American Baptist churches will maintain closed communion all the way through the 19th century pretty well. There'll be some uh, that do not, uh, but the majority of them will maintain that position. And um, I think Kiffin makes some very, very powerful arguments. Um, the New Testament does not know of any unbaptized believers, which Bunyan's position seems to, to admit, you know, it doesn't matter whether you've been baptized as an infant, doesn't matter. baptism doesn't matter at all for, for Bunyan. For, it's very interesting. If you go through the Pilgrim's Progress, there's nothing in the Pilgrim's Progress that is an allegory of baptism. That's a great point. Yep. And um, there might be, there is a scene, I think, of the Lord's Supper, but there's nothing that approximates baptism. And for Bunyan, for Bunyan baptism is something between you and God. If God gives you light to get baptized as a believer, fine. Bunyan himself was baptized as a believer in the River Ouse by the first pastor of the church that he pastored, John Gifford. But um, Bunyan wasn't going to make it a, a principle for church life. For Kiffin, Kiffin has to be true to the scriptures. Uh, Bunyan thought he was being true to the scriptures too. Uh, but what he's actually doing is he's emphasizing a point that the Quakers, interestingly enough, had emphasized. The Quakers rejected both the Lord's Supper and baptism, and they argued, "Well, what need we water when we have the inner when we have the baptism of the Spirit?" And uh, Bunyan is an ardent opponent of the Quakers, but in this he actually agrees with them. Uh, 
Because wow. rebellion, more important than the believer's baptism in, in, in water baptism was if, if I have the spirit, what, what need I water baptism? And if I have the spirit, why, why would you refuse me membership and the Lord's Supper? And Kiffin's argument is, well, this is this is the apostolic model. I'm sorry, but we follow. We want to follow the scriptures. Uh, there is no unbaptized believer in the New Testament. Well, maybe one. The you know thief on the cross, uh, but he, he didn't have time to get baptized. Yeah. <laughs> <laughs> wow, wow. Yeah, I guess it it shows that. Even these great men who had great minds and they mm. put together these confessions, yeah. they had to struggle with real theological issues. It, yeah. They didn't have everything together. <laughs> they still had to work through all these things. Yeah, as I said, you, know, you ask anybody, 17th century Baptist, oh, Bunyan. And Bunyan is a remarkable author, absolutely remarkable, given the fact that he did not have, like Kiffin, but he did not have any formal theological education. He was, you know, he was out working when he was 10 years old. Uh, but in wow. this issue, he is wrong. Uh, wrong from Tiffin's point of view, I think, and I would argue wrong from the, the scripture's point of view. Hmm. All right. So moving, I guess, to, to Kiffin's personal life. And, you know, according, looking at your book on Kiffin Nellies and, and Keach, he was no stranger uh, to tragedy and he had hardship in his own life. Um, how can we learn from his example and the way that he handled uh, the tragedy, trying to balance all of these different things that were going on in the church and dealing with his very um, tragic family life. Yeah, the, the tragedies you're talking about are the deaths of his children. Um, a number of his children died before uh, his, he died. And um, parents shouldn't have to bury their kids. Mm. But it happens. And um, Bunyan, uh, sorry, sorry, Kiffin, uh, Kiffin shows us, uh, here's a man whose who's rock is, is our Lord Jesus Christ. One of the last things he ever pens is, we live, we live in a day when everything is being shaken. How, how blessed to have an immovable rock in our Lord Jesus. Mm. Um, two of his grandsons were executed. Uh, in the 1680s, uh, the British, um, a lot of the British nonconformists, uh, the heirs of the Puritans were just fed up with persecution. And um, uh, the king of England, Charles II, the son of Charles I, he becomes the king after the restoration of the monarchy in 1660. He dies in 1685. Um, and within uh, months of his death, there is a, an attempted rebellion by the Duke of Monmouth, who was an illegitimate son of the king. And uh, the king had been had no legitimate children, so his his brother James II, who was an out and out Catholic, had taken the throne. And the Duke of Monmouth raises a rebellion in the West Country, that is the western part of uh, the southwestern part of England, where Baptists were very strong. And two of Kiffin's grandsons, Benjamin and William Hewling, who were also the grandsons of Oliver Cromwell. That's how close Cromwell and uh, uh, Kiffin are uh, are um, are linked. Uh, Cromwell's daughter. Uh, there must be. Some, I'm trying to think of the link here, but uh, Cromwell was their great grandfather, maybe, or the grandfather. Kiffin was a grandfather. I know Kiffin was a grandfather, so it must be Kiffin's daughter married maybe 
uh, a grandson of Cromwell, something like that. Um, <clears throat> uh, William and Benjamin Hewling, they were 16 and 17 years old. Uh, they joined the, the forces of uh, the Duke of Monmouth. Uh, they were marching on London. Uh, they were beaten, decisively beaten at the Battle of Sedgemoor in 1685. And uh, it was br the, the retaliation after was brutal. Uh, men, and men and even women hung in public squares all the way across the southwest of England. And um, among the two men who were hung were the sons of, of Kiffin the grandsons of Kiffin. And Kiffin went to the judge, a man named, he was known as the Hanging, hanging Judge Jeffries, just a brutal, brutal man. And Kiffin pled with him to please release his sons, his grandsons, and he promised that they wouldn't be involved in such things ever again. And Jeffries' response was, if I had the power to hang you, I'd do that. Very, I'd, I'd do that. There is no way I'm letting these men go. And they were hung. And Kiffin said, it went like a dagger to my heart. Hmm. And uh, then the king, who authorized all this, had the nerve to tell Kiffin, well, maybe I can make it up to you and, you know, give you a political post in London. And like, you, Kiffin, this, this is my take on you. You got to be kidding. Give me a, you know, give me a break. You got to be kidding. <laughs> <laughs> you just killed my grandsons. You got to so, you know, give me some sop of a political post. Like, what kind of person are you? <laughs> um, that's my take on it. <laughs> yeah. <laughs> but, uh, Kiffin, Kiffin, you know, Kiffin knew tragedy. And then his wife dies of many years. Uh, and he remarries unwisely. Mm. And one of the last uh, events of his life is his wife leaving him and uh, uh, absconding of a large amount of money. Mm. And the church having to disfellowship her. So Kiffin's latter days, uh, there are tragedies, not because he had not been a good father and, and husband, but because of these things that, you know, happen in life. And uh, the tragedy is death of his two grandsons was just, I mean, they were young, impressionable. They died well. We have a, we have the letter. I think it's a Benjamin healing to his mother uh, just before his, the day before his death. It's just a beautiful letter of his faith in Christ. But he shouldn't have been caught up in this political rebellion, uh, this uh, military rebellion. Um, but he was. And then uh, Kiffin, at the end of his life, and men do this, you know, uh, they have good marriages and then sometimes foolishly have a second marriage that doesn't doesn't go well. And um, this one didn't. And his wife, uh, Sarah, um, is disfellowshipped by, by the church because of stealing, actually, from her husband. But at the end of the matter, there's a, and in the uh, Kiffin, Knowles, and Keach, I think in the book, uh, I end a chapter on Kiffin with the statement by Kiffin, by Kiffin uh, the Lord is shaking all things. What a, what a, what a, what a, a delight and joy to have a solid rock in our Lord Jesus Christ, who is immovable. Hmm. Amen. Amen. Well, I guess to, to kind of sum it all up, what was, what was Kiffin's legacy? Well, Kevin's legacy is the particular Baptist podcast. <laughs> <laughs> I see, I'm, not, I'm not being facetious. I mean, yeah. I don't think we would have the denomination as we know it. Humanly speaking, uh, Kiffin is able to craft uh, a way uh, for Baptists to survive in an enormously tumultuous period. 
when they are really a fledgling body of churches, and there were there were forces that could have eased and were threatening to pull them apart, particularly in radical directions. And that came home in his own life. I mean, his own two two grandsons joined a something similar to the the sort of thing we saw at the Capitol, you know, last year, uh, which resulted in enormous loss of life, unlike the Capitol, thankfully. Um, and um, uh, Kiffin is just a wise guide. He's not the only figure. I mean, there are others like Hercules Collins, Hansard Knowles, who are like-minded men who stood with him. But Kiffin is this is just this remarkable figure that God raised up for this entire period from 1640s through to 1700, you know, 60 years of just solidity and wise leadership. And the particular Baptists, we, we know them today. Um, and uh, well, Baptist, Baptist as a denomination um, are grounded on the, the, you know, Baptists as, as a people are grounded in these critical events of the 1700s and those confessions, the first London and the second London, we haven't talked about the second London, but Kiffin was involved in the signing of that. And they provide solid theological foundations for the Baptist movement going forward. Um, all of the Baptist churches in the United States um, that come from English speaking roots are traceable back to the particular Baptists that Kiffin was involved in shepherding in this period. Whether or not you believe his Calvinism or not, those are your roots. Uh, there was another group of Baptists. We call them the uh, General Baptists. They were Arminian. They basically die out almost completely in the 18th century. Uh, they, they go into the quagmire of Unitarianism. And Kiffin is, is Kiffin's legacy is the Baptist movement today. And we, we hardly know the man. And yeah. uh, it, 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 it really is a, is a shame because I think I think – in so many areas, he's got a lot to teach us. Amen. Amen. And just to close things out, there's a there's an audience question. Um, Tanner L. Dinkin said a question. Has Kiffin been reprinted? And if not, is there anywhere his writings can be accessed? Yeah, very good. Um, there are there the, the major work that he wrote is the sober disc, a sober discourse of right to church communion. And uh, the Baptist standard bearer out of Paris, Arkansas, reprinted that a few years ago. But I think there really needs to be a nice, you know, critical edition where a good introduction that would also trace out his life um, as well as the book. Um, there are other minor pieces. He wrote forwards, um, afterwards, occasional little pieces here and there. None of those have been reprinted. And again, if somebody's going to do the life of Kiff, and it'd be great to somebody to do, to gather all these little bits together and uh, kind of have them available. Uh, Kiffin is very much, in some ways, a man of action. That's why. That's why we remember Bunyan because of all he, of his writings. Yep. And Kiffin, the sober discourse of right to church communion was never reprinted, published in 1681. Uh, that that was the second edition. Probably, um, probably the the first edition was 16 late 1670s. But the only one we've got is 1681. It was never reprinted till the late 20th century. And so that's another reason why Kiffin is forgotten and Bunyan is remembered. But that would be, a, again, an excellent project. Thank you. Thank you for raising that. Sure, sure. Well, Dr. Heiken, thank you for joining me today. It's been a lot of fun. Um, yeah, I'm a history you. buff, so this is this is a lot of fun to dive into these uh, 
historical accounts and, and learn about our heritage. So thank you for joining me today. My, my pleasure. It's been a joy. And everyone, have a great Lord's Day tomorrow. And um, our next episode will be on Tuesday instead of next Saturday. Um, so join us then. Have a great Lord's Day. Thank you.